0: Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tinellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Back in 2015, when I began to think that perhaps I needed some professional guidance with my dream to become a novelist, I picked up a book called How to Write Your Blockbuster. Reading that book changed my life, a no-nonsense guide to how to go about writing commercial fiction filled with practical advice and tips to help a novice writer finish a draft in a year. What followed, I have to confess, was a slight obsession with the woman who wrote it, an Australian, world-class, international, best-selling raconteur who at the time had written 28 fiction books. I sought her out online and learned that she runs masterclasses for people like me, people who are looking for practical support in this novel writing business. What I found was something I could only have dreamed of. Five years on and another six books to her name, this author continues to enthrall and delight her fans with sweeping historical stargars that take her and her readers across the globe. Earlier this month, her brand new exquisite novel, The Champagne War*, published by Penguin, hit the shelves across Australia. Humbly, I say listeners, it is her best one yet. So it is with delight and pride that I welcome Fiona McIntosh to the podcast today. Hi,
1: Fiona. Hello, Claudine. What an introduction. (laughs) I feel uh, I'll be talking about the same person here as me, but thank you. I'm thrilled that I've had that effect on you and that um, it will continue to inspire you and motivate. That's the whole plan.
0: Indeed, and it most certainly is. Fiona, I wanted to say congratulations on a most spectacular, heart-wrenching novel in The Champagne War. I absolutely loved it. Now, you've said that this novel took its pound of flesh from you. It was written at a difficult time in your life. So I wanted to ask, how are you feeling to finally see it out in the world?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, it's a powerful feeling because... um, I pushed through very challenging times to get this book written and for for you and for a few others that have made the same remark that it is um, arguably my best work is about as good and fine a compliment as I could ever imagine getting for this book because at the time, we weren't sure there would even be a book to put people out of their suspense. My father got ill and passed away as I started to write this book. And it was, um, you know, it was such a shock. None of us saw it coming. And he was like Peter Pan in our lives, in the family's life. And he was a real sparkly creature that moved through the family and around the family and a real motivating influence to us all and so when that light went out it was not only unexpected and shocking it was obliterating and it it required me to really search myself for what what next and come to the conclusion as we all must when we're grieving that we're only here for a short time and that's all of us. So there's no point in when somebody has finished their time here destroying yourself over that. You just have to, you know, look back with absolute delicious memory as I do now and continue to be inspired by that person. And so but at the in the moment of grief, you're feeling so weighted down by the burden of loss that you can't you can't really see you haven't got the perspective that perhaps I do now a year on or 18 months on. I think even my publisher thought, oh, we're not going to get a book, because they knew that I was very close to my father, I was his only daughter, um, one of only two children. And so they sensed immediately it was going to be a bit of an uphill struggle. But in fact, it was the book that was the main distraction and was the great helper. But that didn't make it easy to write, it made it really really hard work real struggle to get this story out and so in that very long way of answering your (laughs) question to now see it on the shelves and people saying such wonderful things about the story i am truly genuinely pinching myself because you know a year ago I, i couldn't imagine that we would even be at this stage of having a finished story so it's it's an extraordinary thing and i think sometimes our creative pursuits can be um our salvation
0: yes wise words indeed fiona i was so enchanted by the story of how you came to write this novel so i was wondering if you could share that moment or the seed of inspiration
1: that developed into sophie delinque's story my publisher believes i have a sort of a magic tentacles (laughs) that draws just the right person into my life at the right time and you know, I could sort of shake that off and wave it away and sort of say, oh, don't be silly. But the truth is, I mean, she can cite all 12 historical fictions and say, no, can we just walk back through all of these? Someone has come into your life that has been the linchpin mm-hmm. to that story and given you just what you needed to be able to do this. And so I, I have got a bit of a track record of serendipitous meetings and I put it down to my attitude that I never plot my story ever. I put myself in the way of a story and I allow it to find me. And that is very frightening for maybe a writer such as yourself, who is trying to juggle all the balls that go into um, putting a manuscript together. And the thought of something so random and so no guarantees and so mysterious that I shall put myself in the way of the story, I think you just want to spit at the screen, I'm sure. <laughs> but really, this is all I do. So, the way that this particular story came about is that I was researching the chocolate tin and I was up in the east of Paris, um, stomping around some of the battlegrounds with a war historian, which is where the main character, Harry, we first meet him, and he's in this this region of France. And whilst I was doing that research, it was quite intense stuff, and I decided to take a day trip out of Paris just to, sometimes you need to just reset, you know, and and clear your mind. And it was just like blowing the cobwebs away. So I took a a day trip to Epinay and Reims. Now in France they say Rames, but I'll say Reims which is the (laughs) English way of saying it, which is the great cathedral city of um, France and where all the kings have been crowned down the centuries, you know. So it's a, well I say it was a glorious city and it's now a wonderful city, but I learned when I got there that not only is it the big cousin to the more country cousin of Epinay, which is where the the main Champagne region, it's famous for all the main brands um, being located. This city was just about flattened. I think it was 22 houses were left, or 22 structures mm. were left after World War I. And that got me thinking, and then I went into the cathedral, and it just so happened, as I walked down that great nave, there was a photographic exhibition being held just for a couple of weeks, and it was to do with World War One. And I was astonished by this sort of pictorial history of the war and what it did to the city and the surrounding region. And I could feel it. I could feel this story coalescing around me. And I thought, my gosh, there's a story here. So, um, but yet it had no real kernel. And other than this idea was now just sitting in my mind. And then I came home and I was chatting to my publisher about what we might think about down the track, because I always work two to three years ahead and i said you know i could i could do this i could do that i could do champagne i could do and i carried on with this list (laughs) of stuff. and she loves it when i do that because she said i can't believe you're letting me pick and she said hands down champagne please it's my favorite drink in the world please do champagne and i thought okay so now i know where i have to go to get this story and i've already know my era because i couldn't resist that world war one photographic exhibition and everything i'd learned about how the civilians left behind coped with four years of war on their doorstep. So the front line for France was just outside Reims and it was just terrifying. And I went to Eponay, sorry, this is another long-winded answer, isn't it? (laughs) Off I went to Eponay and I was with my husband and he always feels very nervous at this stage because there's no story, you see, and yet we're spending lots and lots of money just putting ourselves, as I say, in the way of a story. And he always says, is it happening yet? Is it? He gets very impatient and I, I have to sort of settle him down and say, look, just... Be quiet and let me be and let me find this story. Anyway, we were walking down the main Avenue de Champagne in Eponay, which I'm sure many of your readers have also walked down. And for those who have, they'll know that it's full of ostentatious buildings and very famous brands. Or, or they sort of sell a door, if you please, or they show off property. And I came across this very beautiful, understated, very f- country French manor And it was a brand I didn't know. It was called House Gonnay and I was admiring it. And I said to my husband, well, if if I was allowed to choose to live in any one of these places, this is the place I would choose because it's so gorgeous. It's like a little fairy tale sitting here amongst all these um, dramatic buildings. Anyway, we were taking photographs and I noticed there were some tradies getting ready to obviously do some work on this particular property. One of them peeled away and came towards us and it was a woman and she was covered in dust and paint and hair all tumbled up and jeans. And she said, can I help you? And we, we sort of said, oh, look, sorry, we don't mean to trespass. We're just admiring this house and we're from Australia. And she said, oh, the French do like Australians. And she said, would you like to see inside? And I mean, she hadn't even finished the sentence and I was already at the front <laughs> door. You know, I'd broken through the, I'd legged it to the front door. And then I sort of um, gathered my senses and said, oh, look, you know, I'm very eager to get in through these doors, but um, how about the owners? How are they going to feel if we just all stomp in? And she said, no, I am the owner. <laughs> and so she took us inside into this glorious house over four or five stories and, and just sat us down, opened a bottle of champagne. It was like 10.30 in the morning, sat Ian in a corner with a bottle of champagne. He he couldn't have got a better deal, really. And the two of us got chatting. And um, the more Sophie talked, the more I realised that I was meeting my character. Sophie Signol is her name. And she is the daughter of a champagne maker she is the sixth generation of champagne makers and she has inherited this fabulous boutique you could call it house from her father and her grandfather and before then and she had a real skill in this area she learned how to um tend the vines and and be a vigneron at his knee and then she learned at his knee how to make champagne and she's a widow And she's raised children um, through tough times and everything she said, everything, I began to fall in love with this girl. I was completely mesmerized by her. And then when she began to talk about making champagne, it was just her passion and the way she spoke about it. I just stopped her and said, Sophie, you are my character. And I said, I really, really want to rummage around in your life and then take you back a hundred years and make you my character. And she said if you give me the most torrid affair i need a massive romance you can do what you like with me and so we made this bargain you know over a bottle of champagne and it was hilarious and she just is so tickled to be the main character. And and she also gave me the name of Deloncray, which is a family name that has, has sort of died out because there aren't any sons. But she said, it's our name, it's in our family, and it belongs to this region. And so she, I said, okay, we're gonna call the character Sophie Deloncray. And she said, and I'll tell you what, when you bring the book out, because she trusted me, she said, maybe we can make a champagne in the name of Deloncray. And I was just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this was so meant to happen, wasn't it? And this is what I mean, it's just, that courage, I suppose, and my uh, complete faith and trust in myself that I will find the story if I just go and put myself in the right place at the right time. I know that characters and places and stories will find me. And so that is how it all came about. And from there on, it was just a breeze. I mean, it took four trips to Épinay to learn everything I needed to learn, because there are so many layers to this story. So much for me to learn and absorb before I could even think about writing it. And then on top of that, the death of my father just made it like, it felt like Everest. But I had Sophie. I knew I had Sophie all the way down the line. So
0: Marvellous tale. Absolutely brilliant. So for those who haven't had the pleasure of reading it like I have, can you tell us a little bit more about the story?
1: I don't want anyone to, and thank you for not actually saying um, this beautiful historical romance that you've written, Fiona, because I just... Uh Um, I just start shying away the minute I'm described as a romance writer, because I am not. And that is no disrespect to the people who write romance. As you'll remember from our masterclass, I I sort of gave a a description of what a real romance, category romance, looks and feels like, and, and the tropes and the conventions that a romance reader comes to that kind of um book and that genre for mm. and it's got a massive following around the world. But I don't sit in that genre. I would describe myself as historical adventure. And there is I cannot walk away from the fact that my stories are romantic. So that but they are set in romantic times against a romantic backdrop with a romantic landscape. And even the characters themselves are quite romantic in how I make them up. However, you know This story is actually, and you've read it, you will understand why I say this, it's quite harrowing in parts. There's tremendous darkness in the story and I have to somehow balance that with giving a lot of light as well in the story. And so it's essentially, there are three main characters, but there are two that we follow very closely. Our champagne maker, Champenoise, Sophie Delancre, and a British chemist who is a pacifist but joins up for World War One after the first gassing when the Germans first let rip with chlorine gas and the devastation it wreaks. And he is so horrified that it was made by a chemist and that he might be asked. join in with the big push in britain to make an even more lethal poison gas he joins up he'd rather sit behind a rifle or jump over a a, you know a trench top and get mowed down just sort of honest war you know Mm. face to face we're following charlie's story through flanders and into france and we're following sophie's story as a newlywed woman looking forward to life and all that the happiness that falling in love and thinking about family is bringing her. And then World War I strikes and just devastates her life. It takes away her husband, who goes uh, almost immediately missing. um, And he's trapped in that terrible first gassing, presumed dead. And so Sophie faces four hard years of melancholy, misery, battle, death and, all the problems associated with war of the women left behind and so it's a very sad and melancholy story and these two people her and charlie under no under circumstances would have met except under the circumstances of the champagne war and how they meet is rather extraordinary and they build this very strong relationship together that sort of helps one another through the darkest times that's what the story is about but there's great joy in the story when we get into Epinay and begin to learn about champagne and those vineyards and I give each grape a personality Mm -hmm. to bring into the story. Oh look it's just a big epic tale isn't it and sort of heart-wrenching all the way through. Indeed it is.
0: Now your character Sophie is a strong woman who in many ways is ahead of her time and forging a career for herself in what was then a very male dominated industry Mm. this is a theme that you've explored time and again in your novels and one of the many reasons no doubt why people are drawn to your stories so I wanted to ask is this conscious or more serendipitous do you think?
1: No it's uh, it's utterly conscious Mm. Uh, I really wanted to start writing historical fiction back in you know, I'd written all those fantasy stories and there was about 14 big adult fantasy books with my name on them in all sorts of languages. And all of those fantasy books were really led by men, by male characters. And I loved them. They were all... Really, Mr. Darcy, whether he was in chainmail or screaming in a dungeon, it was it was actually Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy walking around my pages. But I loved writing male characters, and although there were strong women, it was really a male-dominated genre that I was uh, the storytelling was coming from a male point of view. But I noticed that when I wrote female characters. I was writing very strong female characters. They were quite kick ass. They weren't sort of shy, retiring types. And I realized, you know, while I loved writing men, I was obviously really good at writing women from a a woman's perspective. And so when I moved into historical fiction, I tried to juggle both and I did uh, Fields of Gold and then The Lavender Keeper and The French Promise had these very strong males plus very strong women. And then I thought, oh, to hell with it. I'm going to just really lean slightly more, make the story, the story's central character. If you had to pick one, it's going to be told more from a woman's perspective. And I've never let go of the men in my story, and I love them. So for Charlie in this story, I absolutely adore him. Mm. And I think all the men who are reading this story, and there are plenty, I've never had so many male readers reading my historical fiction as I have. (laughs) And And the men are loving, both characters, but they love that there is this very strong bloke in it as well. So I'm perhaps now returning to that more balanced, balancing it up a little bit more, uh, which I think is probably the most comfortable way to write it. But I can't let go of having a strong female central character because I think I get very bored if women act weak. I get very bored with them and I will kill them in my stories because I can, you know, I'll just get rid of them somehow. I need all my females, if they're leading my stories, to solve their own dilemmas and and to be on the front foot at all times. So, yeah, it is a very conscious point of view that I take.
0: I was going to say that we obviously learn about some phenomenal avant-garde women in your books, Fiona, but equally you're able to conjure these most marvellous male characters in your historical books. And I think I was going to say I think I've fallen in love with just about every one of them. Charlie Nash was indeed quite irresistible in, in the Champagne War, but so was Saxon Vickery from the So he ones. was Saxon Vickery is
1: probably he's <laughs> sort of like the, that right out there, sort of big and golden and Robert Redfordy sort of um, <laughs> I, yes, I do love Saxon and I also loved Rafe from The Last Dance. I found him a very enigmatic character. Those are the kind of men that I write in my books. They are enigmatic. They are a bit distant. They're not easy to access. And I just like that sort of character who's a bit gruff, but has a tenderness about him, particularly with women. I do love that I will never stop writing that character as I say I think it's the same character over and over for my men because I fall in love with them too and Charlie is very easy to fall in love with because he's so traumatized isn't he really all the way through the book he's quite a melancholy kind of character I know everyone in the publishing house was saying oh, Fiona, did it have to end like this? And I'm trying not to spoil the story, but it's almost like a choice. There's a big choice that has to be made at the end of the book. And I hope everyone will agree that Sophie does in fact make the right choice. I don't want to spoil any more there.
0: That's right. Absolutely. Now, Sophie Signore wasn't just the inspiration for your fictional character in The Champagne War, but she actively helped
1: you with some difficulties you encountered while writing, didn't she? Oh, she was marvelous. As I say, I went back to I was in Epinay all up four times, and she was there each time to sort of um, fill me in on all sorts of aspects, but particularly giving me an education into champagne. And interestingly enough, uh, and it was very poignant that I lost my father at the beginning of the book, and towards the end of the book, she lost her father. And as I told you, she's the only only girl; she's inherited this um, marvelous champagne house and she'd learned everything at her daddy's knee and she was incredibly close to him as I was to my dad and so we'd both gone through this pain and loss during this book and so I could fully understand um, what she was going through and it was sort of a glue that inspired us both to stay close and help one another out but also I mean her ideas were fabulous you know There's a situation in the story, and I don't think I'm spoiling anything when I say in real life, during the war, there were all sorts of shortages going on. There were, you know, glass shortages, cork shortages, all sorts of things that affected the champagne industry but all sorts of industries but if we just focus on the champagne industry the real killer was there was a sugar shortage and you need sugar to have the absolute alchemy that goes into balancing out champagne and getting it to do its its effervescence and all of its marvelous wizardry in the bottle during the second fermentation and in real life there was a a blockade you know sugar wasn't coming through from Africa it wasn't coming through from South America you just couldn't get it and I could not get past that that was happening in real life I could have just not mentioned it and carried on with the book but I would have been you know cheating the reader so I had to address this problem of of no sugar and so I mentioned it to Sophie and she laughed and she said well We'll we'll have to find another way around this. And it, it was actually a suggestion I made. I said, what about this? Mm. And when I said it, she just couldn't stop giggling. She said, oh, that's inspired. And she said, let's do it. Let's make it. And so she made up this champagne for me, um, using this wacky idea I'd had. I mean, to me, it was wacky, but to her, it wasn't wacky at all. It made perfect sense. And she said, well, you're thinking like a winemaker now. We tried it and I've got the bottle sitting on my desk and we managed to get a bottle home and it works. It's got a bit of a mule kick to it because it's increased the alcohol level. Mm. But she thinks it's quite good fun and she said it's inspired and it it is exactly how they would have had to adapt in the in the time when you didn't have this or that you have to find a way around it you don't just stop she was great like that that she responded to all my needs and she allowed me to just uh run rampage at one stage she just turned over her whole house to me she said look i know you need to because i kept saying i need to live and breathe this house I need to understand its creeks and so she just cleared out she just cleared everybody (laughs) out and I lived there for um, four days you know being the lady of the manor this very same house that I told you about at the beginning and it was wonderful you know I just had this gorgeous house all to ourselves and I could go into any room and I could feel its creeks and its size and and understand it for the for the writing of the story
0: it's just brilliant and there's a photo of this house in yes. the front cover
1: of your book isn't there yeah i had to put it in because it, i just wanted people to know um we spent quite a bit of time in this house so they they need to know what it looks like and then i hope as they read the pages they'll begin to Feel it around them.
0: Talking of alchemy, you're a bit of an alchemist yourself in many ways, and I'm not just talking about champagne making. For those who don't actively follow Fiona on social media, and I recommend that you do, your posts are always filled with luscious examples of your baking efforts. Your newsletters are a testament to life on your farm and the bountiful fruits of Mr. Max Labor, which you promptly turn into some mouth-watering cake or treat. So I wanted to ask, do baking and writing share similar attractions for you? Is it a kind of therapy you use for fermenting ideas or just for relaxation?
1: Uh, It's interesting. Uh, I think baking for me is the flip side of writing for me. So writing for me is getting lost in my imagination. So it's a cerebral process. It's very, it's very selfish. You know, I'm absolutely focused in my own story and imagination and where it could go what the baking does for me is it unleashes me and it gives me a marvelous freedom to just switch off from all of that and I am never ever thinking about my stories when I'm baking because baking requires a sort of I don't know if it's a different part of the brain that has to switch on but when I'm baking you're focused on something that is about measuring and precision and preparation but you've also your mind is empty it's the imagination is not engaged i i don't feel engaged when i'm baking i'm lost when i'm baking and but it's a lovely freedom and it's like my brain or mind just sighs into a comfy chair whilst something else is taking care of business you know i don't know where it is but it's not my thoughts or imagination that are on the march at that stage it's something else that is focused on a recipe and making sure that I'm getting every, every part of that recipe right and I love it and there's and the great thing about baking is there is a reward at the end of this <laughs> endeavor in the way that when you do any sort of housekeeping There is no reward. I don't know. I mean, some people might feel, oh, that's wonderful when they see a tidy house or a pile of ironing all done. They maybe feel congratulate themselves. I don't get that kick out of it. I just think it's the most thankless tasks being done (laughs) and in a minute will be upended by the dog that comes rushing through or or people. Whereas baking, you get days of pleasure of people telling you how amazing you are because you've given them this delicious treat. And I like that reward at the end of it. Not, Not so much the thanks, but looking at it and thinking that really worked and I got that right or next time I'm going to do this. So baking for me is a real escape and real zen for my mind, if you like. So it's the flip of what I'm doing when I'm writing.
0: Very interesting. I've heard you say that the travel restrictions forced upon us by COVID this year have clipped your wings, so to speak. So Mm. I wanted to ask, what does that mean for your future books and has this impacted your release for next year?
1: It is a monster devastation for the books that I write so every book that you know about that I've written and I think last count it was 38 or 39 something like that Mm. they need overseas because I'm not the writer that writes domestic stories I'm the writer that promises to armchair readers to a different landscape to take them out of Australia and plonk them down in 1930s India or um, 1960s London or whatever. So that's my shtick. That's what is promised through my books. So it is devastating for me that I can't even leave the country. When this was first happening, I realised I couldn't even leave my own state. Mm. because I was already beginning to think around May. My gosh, I'm going to have to write an Australian story. And I'd never done one before. And then I realized, no, it's not going to be Australian. It's going to have to be South Australian because I can't get out of our own state. Again, it is very easy to start whinging about that and feeling sorry for yourself, but the tough get going. And I am am tough on myself. And I just thought, well, you know, everyone's in the same boat and you've got to produce a book. So get on with it. Now, the good luck that I had on my side is that I was in Europe in February and I was working on uh, researching a new book which is called loosely at the moment The Spy's Wife and it's an interwar years story so it's set in the 1930s uh, giving everyone a break from war and it's set in Britain and Germany and we had travelled through london i'd been up to yorkshire and done some research and and then we went to i don't know lithuania um, because i wanted to meet my publisher there having a grand old time but it was as we got into lithuania we began to realize this thing about covid that was apparently from china was beginning to have some effect you know it was beginning to creep across the world and we were beginning to think we need to be a bit careful here and then our next stop was germany and we scooted around. I was doing a recce. I wasn't doing really deep research. I was doing a recce, looking at the cities of Berlin, and Munich and Nuremberg and thinking, all right, right, that's my triangle that I'll work in. And this is the sort of feeling that I need to get. And then, you know, things were getting serious and we thought we need to get out. And so we got out of Germany and as we, I just managed to drag my huge bottom in through the doors before <laughs> Australia closed its gates. It was it was that close. We just skidded in. Fortunately, I've got that. And so I can write next year's book I think, 60,000 words into it now, and I'm, I'm okay. I've, I've got enough material. So 2021 is safe. It's 2022 that is the real problem for me. And uh, I had a marvellous story, absolutely, without doubt, the most exciting for me story that I was ever going to research. And there were a lot of people around the world offering help. Um, and they were coming from Britain. They were coming from America. They were coming from all over. It's just going to be brilliant but I needed to get to about four different countries and um, it was a very ambitious project and I know my publisher was just really excited about it but there's no way I'm, I'm going to be able to do it no way even if I left tomorrow it's already too late if you know what I mean I, I need at least two full years to research so it's it's not enough time we're going to put that book forward to 2023 and i'll slot in a south australian story that i've begun the research for and quite like i'm surprised i thought i was going to really my shoulders were going to be droopy as i was researching it but i've actually got quite excited about it and i know my publisher is deliriously happy Mm -hmm. now that i've sort of thrown a loose storyline together they just They're just so thrilled with what is shaping. And so I'm pretty um, upbeat based on all their joy. And certainly the audience has said, oh, we can't wait for you to write an Australian story. And I've always steered clear because I think I was born on the other side of the world and I tend to feel that easier. I think when you're born in a place, all the Australians born here, they really feel Australia in in their DNA. Whereas I tend to feel you know, Britain and Europe in my DNA. Yeah. So I've stayed clear of being presumptuous enough to write an Australian story, but now I'm... I'm cornered and um, like a caged animal, I have to respond. So that's what I'm doing, uh, South Australian Story.
0: Well, that sounds very exciting. It is, it is. <laughs> now, talking about South Australia, I wanted to move on to a bit of a chat about Masterclass, if that's okay.
1: Sure.
0: I was fortunate enough to attend both a full course in April of 2017 plus the wonderful NatCon that was held in the Clear Valley last year. And as I said in my introduction, finding you and your Masterclasses was a gift. I've been able to connect with a large community of writers who are chasing the same dream, many of whom have already found incredible success with major publishers here in Australia. So for those who don't know about Fiona McIntosh, the writing mentor, can you tell me more about it and how did it all come about?
1: Well, it, it, it goes back 20 years exactly, actually. I was, you know, a bit like you described yourself. I had this desire to... I'd never thought of myself as a writer. I came to my writing at 39, so it was quite late, I'd always been a reader, but it it never occurred to me to turn that skill into or or that joy of reading into writing. Uh, But at 39, it did. It was a bit like a midlife crisis that crept up on me and said, you know what you want to do is write a book, don't you? And I didn't know that. But that's, I thought, okay, let's see what, where this is going to go. And so I cast around as you did for a solid writing course. And I just didn't like anything I was looking at until I stumbled across this one in Hobart with Bryce Courtney. And I think 80% of it was being able to meet Bryce Courtney because The Power of One had meant so much to me as a youngster and had inspired me in my life, you know, to go for it. So I wanted to meet him and I thought, well, he's Australia's favourite storyteller. He's going to have tips and tricks and ideas and he knows how to do this. So. I signed up, I was very lucky to get the very last place and I took off a week and I went down to Hobart and it changed my life, just changed my life. Within those five days I walked back into my home as a different person, I I walked back in as a writer. I knew this is what I was going to do and in fact riding high on his utter confidence that I already was a writer, I just hadn't written the story. I wrote my first fantasy story and I wrote it really fast. I wrote it in about six weeks and um sent it off to the biggest publisher of of the genre and where all my favorite fantasy writers lived which was with HarperCollins. i got a reply within a, about 10 days where they said we absolutely love this and we would like you to uh, write three of these for us can you make this story a trilogy and i was off that was it that was the fairy tale beginning and i didn't look back and i've been published ever since and the books went international. And, you know, so I had to do a very public apprenticeship. Because if I look back at that first book, I could cringe, you know, <laughs> but so many people love it. So I was obviously a born storyteller, but I hadn't learned the craft of really solid writing. And that had to be learned over some years. And Bryce had worn me off writing historical fiction. He said, no, it will demand its pound of flesh from you. Don't do it. Wait until you know how to write books. And I didn't really understand it at the time, but 10 years later, I absolutely understood what he was talking about. And that's when I decided I would start writing historical fiction. Anyway, it was In 2012, Bryce was uh, very, very ill, gravely ill, in fact. And he contacted me and said, I'm going to need your help. Um, I'm going to have one last masterclass. And I'd love it if you'd come in for a day and just spend an hour with these people and 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 inspire them. Because I'd love to point to you and say, you know, Fiona's my great success story. She, she paid attention in class. She did what I asked her to do. And here she is, you know, flying along. And so he said, darling, you know I'm dying, don't you? And I didn't know that. And it was really like such a punch in the guts. And so I couldn't say no. And so I flew to Canberra. And when I got there, I realised... He he wasn't joking. He looked so so ill, and I remember saying to him, "Bryce, how are you going to do this? It's it's five days, and you look like you're going to fall over." I said, "How are you going to run this class?" And he said, "I'm not going to, darling. You are." So he'd got me there rather cheekily on the pretext of you know just spending an hour on the ground, but I spent much longer, and I. I was there out the front strutting my funky stuff, as we say. And by then I'd been writing for, you know, 13 years and I had something to say about it. He was very impressed with how I conducted myself because he said, you're so ruthless, Fiona. He said you're not at all nice are you when you're and i because you know how I begin masterclass and I am quite in your face aren't I and, and I sort of tear down all the dreamy stuff and put it in front of you all and say this is what it is about and then I build you all back up again and and so it, it is that process and he just loved it and at the end of it he said I'm passing the baton And he just said to me, I need you to keep doing this after I've gone. And I said, oh, Bryce, no, I don't. I'm not a teacher. I'm not. He said, you need to do this. This is something you should be doing for the people behind you because you can make a difference. And so I gave him my word that I would do at least one. But one became two because it kept filling. The masterclass keeps filling so quickly. And so here we are in in 2020. And all the masterclasses in 2021 are chock a block, and 2022 is already half full. So, if I have dream uh, thoughts of not dreams, but thoughts of ever not doing it, I can't because it feels ahead of me, you see. And this year alone, we've had five lovely dreamers, five newbies who just had the dream and they've been picked up by major. Publishers in this country and all offered significant contracts, and they'll all be on debut next year in 21, 2021 and 2022. And it's beyond exciting. I'm seeing their advanced proofs come through onto my desk, and I think, wow, there's Katie or there's Tanya or there's, you know, it's just amazing that I remember sitting with them and sort of saying, now, how are we going to approach this? And so it's it's just. It's a real reward and it inspires me, to be honest. Um, Masterclass inspires me, so it it works both ways. And we've now got about 400 in our community and they're all great people. They're not there to tear each other down. They're there to build each other up, aren't they? You know Mm -hmm. from the gang that they're very nourishing and I love that. I wouldn't tolerate it any other way.
0: Well, I love it too and I can certainly attest to the power of this program. So for anyone out there who might be interested in investing in their writing, in careers in this way? Where can they find out
1: more? Well, they're very welcome to go to my website, which is very simply Com. You can just click through into the masterclass and read about it, you know, do some homework and find out if this feels like you. Because there are two options. There's the, the main masterclass, the five-day signature one, which is quite intense, and it has homework. And as you would recall, you sort of leave it after five days feeling quite your head full and quite punch drunk, delighted and excited, but quite exhausted from so much being learned and you're having to take on board. So I realise that there are other people who who don't want to be worked quite so hard. And so I do the three day weekend mini masterclass, which is less intense and allows you to just sort of explore yourself as a storyteller and learn all the same you you cover the same academic landscape but it's not nearly as punishing and it's a little bit more informal and relaxed and there's more time to talk to me one-on-one so I you know there are those two options and they can see which one suits them and then they can write to me and find out more there's no need to sort of book in straight away have a chat to me and just see if this is the sort of thing that you think can help you there's no pressure but i will warn people if they like what they read they've got to book because it fills really fast and i do cut off the numbers quite ruthlessly because if we've got too many people in the room it's not conducive and it doesn't help anyone so I cut off once I reach what I consider the max I cut off and I just have to push people through to the following year.
0: Okay Fiona what top three tips would you have for anyone wanting to start writing or who is looking for a home for their novel?
1: Well I think for anyone who wants to start writing they've got to stop talking about it and thinking about it and take some action because to write is um, as I say in my blockbuster book you know that is a verb and that means action so you have to do something about it it's no good plotting and planning and talking about it and joining writers groups and just musing on it and you know um, being part of a reading group and just thinking oh I'm I'm researching I'm developing that's rubbish you have to get on and do it or the years are going to go by so the first thing is be decisive and take action the second thing I think is to truly commit many writers set out with a lot of gusto and just fall by the wayside because they they run out of puff for so many reasons but uh, the main reason that they run out of puff is that they give themselves excuses to stop because they're discovering that it's hard work you know any endeavor anything gardening painting taking up any new hobby any sort of sport anything baking it's an endeavor and it means you have to be very committed to it you have to really want to do this and you have to be prepared to learn your first book okay i did it but that was that's not the traditional journey there are a few of us who get away and live the fairy tale but for the most part your first and second and third books are just you practicing your craft and learning your manuscripts are your great teachers and so you have to understand that how you write now is not how you're going to be writing you know in a year's time or even after masterclass i'll change how you write because You'll be better equipped by the end of those five days to tackle a manuscript. So we keep learning. I keep learning. You've got to be prepared to say to yourself, I'm committing, but I know I'm going to keep learning. And the other thing is discipline. It it all boils down to discipline. Like any endeavor, as I say, if you don't stay at it and, and keep doing it, you're going to be one of those people that just talk about it or try it. Discipline is what gets me through and it's the reason I am an annual producer of a book that sells at Christmas time is because I'm very disciplined about it. It's not because I'm necessarily a better writer than you or the next person. It's just that I get on with it and I'm really committed and I don't give myself excuses. I'm never too tired. I'm and I wrote my early books, my first six books. I was working full time, and i was raising twins with my husband there are no legitimate excuses you know there are no legitimate excuses other than i think having a baby sort of changes you a little bit so that's not a good time to take up writing moving house is not a good time to take up writing and when you're dead is not a good time to take up writing so those are the three excuses you're allowed but the rest of it they're not legitimate they're just you backing off so everything else your work commitments, your social commitments, your family commitments, The writing has to fit around that and you still have to get to the writing in the same way that you have to get to cooking the evening meal or taking your children to school or going and visiting your parents. The writing has to fit around that. And yes, sacrifices will have to be made in order to do that writing, but it's got to be as important as you taking your exercise or or breathing. So you you weight it in in much the same way. I mean, I would put family first over anything but that doesn't mean to say that I would sit and watch television with my family when a manuscript is waiting. So, yeah, you've just got to be utterly disciplined about it. Fantastic advice. Now, I'm I'm conscious that our time is nearing
0: an end, but I think it would be remiss of me, Fiona, not to mention your crime novels. And for those <laughs> of you who are not familiar with Fiona's work, in addition to the historical novels, Fiona has written a crime series, the Jack Hawksworth novels. And as a bit of a crime fiction junkie myself, I've devoured these books.
1: And there's a new one coming, isn't there? yes i'm i am very excited because like you i am a crime junkie and if i'm given a choice of any genre to read at any time for my leisure and pleasure it's always crime mm. always uh, number one is where i default to because a crime tends to especially on long haul plane trips and things like that you, you know it makes the time go very quickly and it you know it's exciting so i i do love the genre of crime and i love writing crime but they're hard to um, fit around the historical novels because you know the historical novels take so much uh, time and effort from me that it's hard to take my eye off the ball. But there was this campaign started by a couple of people online in social media it's called Bring Back Jack. And they've been chanting it for a few years, actually, and um, relentless with it. And it's very funny. Every now and then, they'll post and say, Bring Back Jack. Why won't you bring back Jack? And it's and it's got its own hashtag and everything. And it's, it's very funny. And I finally, in this COVID year... I had a lot more time and i thought you know i could probably get a, a crime written and i'd already done the research because i'd been in london and i'd been thinking about jack and thinking it's time to you know deliver on these poor girls who are desperately trying to catch my attention and so i thought okay let's bring back jack and the publisher was very happy and so mirror man is book number three featuring DCI Jack Hawksworth and it's finished and written and I'm I've only got nine chapters of the edit to go and it will be out for June uh so for a nice winter read in 2021 I'm so excited I am very much looking forward to that one I love it I love him I love his You know, I love all these trials and tribulations and and I really love this story. It's a great story. Excellent. Fiona, I could chat to you
0: for hours, but for now, I want to congratulate you once again on a most wonderful achievement with the Champagne War, a thoroughly gripping and heart-wrenching story that will leave readers wanting more. Listeners, buy, download or borrow it today. And Fiona, thank you so much for
1: joining me on Talking Aussie Books. My absolute pleasure. And uh, to all your listeners, thank you for tuning in to this one and i hope you'll go on listening to claudine and encouraging her with her writing (laughs) and most of all stay healthy stay bright
0: well that's a wrap folks if you enjoyed this podcast please leave a review on itunes or drop me a line via my instagram at claudine tinellis or on my webpage claudine thanks for listening until next time happy reading